Why don't you open up your Bible, turn to John chapter 4. I think we're turning the corner into month two of the Gospel of John, and so I thought I'd recap just a little bit so we're all on the same page in, in, in case anybody is, is new with us. The Gospel of John is a little bit different than the other Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are known as the synoptic Gospels because they give a synopsis of the life of Jesus. That's where they start with the beginning of his life in Matthew and Luke and the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, and they go all the way through in order until he ascends back into heaven. But the Gospel of John is a little bit different. See, he's trying to answer a question that lots of people are still asking today. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Because just like in our day, in their day, uh, there were lots of different theories. Uh, some thought he was just an incredible teacher. Uh, some thought that he was a revolutionary that got himself killed by the Roman Empire. Some people obviously thought that he was a resurrected Lord. And so John wants to give his account but he is a little bit different. He is a synopsis and a sermon jammed together. He has a spiritual goal for you. In fact, he's going to say it really clearly at the end of his gospel. He wants us to know that we can have eternal life in Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Messiah is a word that you've heard before. Christ is a word that you've heard before. They're really the same thing. One is in one language and the other is in another language. And so far in the Gospel of John, he's introduced us to people who will let us know that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. Starting in chapter 1, he lets us know in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's a capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right away, opening sentence, John says, when we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, we're not just talking about uh, another human being. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the Word of God. He was a part of creation. He is God in human flesh. Then we meet John the Baptist. Uh, then we meet John the Baptist's disciples who actually left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Then we meet Jesus' mother Mary at a wedding in Cana where he turns water into wine. Then Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he causes a bunch of chaos there so that they know and we know that something greater than the temple has arrived on planet earth. Then we get into John chapter 3. We meet Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and it's verse 16 that's so famous in the middle of that conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Then we are reintroduced to John the Baptist. And here we get to chapter 4 where John is going to introduce us to a Samaritan woman. Now there's not really anything historically unique about her. She was just like most of us, uh, was I'm sure beloved by the people who knew her, but they're not going to write a lot of books about her. But Jesus has an interaction with her because Jesus is in southern Israel and he is on his way back home in northern Israel and there are a couple of routes that he can choose from, what we're going to talk about in just a second. He decides to go the harder route through Samaria and he meets this Samaritan woman because he sits down on a well because he's had a long day and he's tired. That's actually what the scriptures are going to say. His disciples go uh, into town, the nearest village, to get some food. So he is alone with this woman who's come in the middle of the day to get some water. Jesus is a little bit friendlier than he needs to be or what, at least what she's expecting him to be. And so they get into a, a pretty intense discussion. It starts out lighthearted, starts about uh, water, uh, and, and then it transitions to some shame that she was carrying. And in the end, Jesus says, this is the kind of worship that I Actually, God wants from you. And what's interesting is she leaves that conversation, goes back into her village, tells everybody uh, that she knows what has happened to her, and, and then we're going to see their reaction to that next week. But there are four things 
that I want you to write down and I want us to remember. John uses these four things to again prove to us over and over again in this gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Number one, Christ Jesus reaches across divides. We're getting to know Jesus as Christ, and so Christ Jesus reaches across divides. Verse 1, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact Jesus was not baptizing those, but his disciples were. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So in the first uh, six verses of chapter 4, the word Samaria or Samaritan is used six times. So this idea that Jesus is going through Samaria is really important to John who's writing this letter. Because there was a big divide between Samaritans and the Jewish people. As I mentioned, I brought a map with me. Uh, In the southern half of Israel, we're looking at what most of us know as Israel. This is what it was like in the first century. In the southern half, uh, there's Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. In the northern half, Galilee, at the top of the map, that's where Jesus was from. He was raised in Nazareth, and then his home base was Capernaum, which you can't see on the maps. I didn't do a bunch of research. This is from Google Images, so uh, just, you know, they didn't teach me that in seminary. I didn't go to seminary very much. I, I, I feel like that's clear. That's... So uh, in the middle, in the yellow, is Samaria. And that's where Jesus is in the middle of this story. Now there's real rich history between the people of Israel. That's the southern half at the bottom and the northern half at the top. Um, because in ancient times, that all just used to be Israel. And Samaria was just a, a, a town, really. It was just a village. It was just a place. But in Israel's history, Assyria, which was a world empire, uh, they came and they conquered that little yellow circle right there. And they did the most interesting thing. They took the Israelites who were living there and they exiled them. They they made them leave home. And instead of just doing that, which is what the Babylonians did in the southern half of Israel, uh, they took people from the rest of their empire and they moved them in. So you have Israelites moving out and you have a bunch of random people moving in. Well, Uh, Eventually, those random people start having families and they start putting roots down and and all the things that you and I would do if we were moved into a new location. Well, eventually those Israelites, Assyria wasn't in power anymore, and so they all moved home. But when they got there, there are all these random people living in what used to be the home of their grandpa and their mom and dad and uh, the place of their family history. So already, right from the beginning, uh, there's a lot of tension. As I mentioned, the southern half of Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was burnt down to the ground, including the temple in Jerusalem. Um, When the Israelites came back to Jerusalem, one of the things that was on the top of their to-do list was to rebuild the temple. Well, the Samaritans, uh, they offered help to the Israelites. Do you want us to help rebuild your city and and especially the temple? And the Israelites said, no, thank you. Uh, You guys are not the true people of God. Uh, We are not going to let you mess with the true house of God 
here in Jerusalem. So you can imagine how offended you might be if you had offered your help and that help was rejected. And then for good measure, uh, a generation or so later, there was an Israelite general who marched himself into Samaria and burnt down the temple that the Samaritans had built from their self, for themselves. So there's all this kind of hostility. And then for good measure, when a Jewish person was making the commute from the southern half to the northern half, which happened all the time, sometimes groups of Samaritan robbers would take uh, from those pilgrims. So there's all this in the background. So if you were just kind of a regular Jewish person and you had come down from the northern half of Israel to the southern half of uh, Israel, you would actually walk around that entire uh, region. So if you needed to go to Oklahoma uh, today, uh, we would not want to go through Dallas because Dallas is the worst, obviously. (laughs) You would drive east into Louisiana up through Louisiana and Arkansas, and then eventually into Oklahoma. That's exactly what the Israelites would do. They would walk themselves all the way around Samaria along the Jordan River. But it says that Jesus didn't do that. He had to go through Samaria. That's the language that the scripture uses. Now, what's interesting is he didn't have to go through Samaria. You know how I know that? Because he is the eternal, pre-existing son of God, and he can do whatever he wants. There was a group who came to arrest him one time towards the end of his life, and you remember, he just asked them a question. Who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am he, and the whole mob fell down. So that's the kind of power that we're dealing with. Nobody makes somebody like that go anywhere that they don't want to go. But the scripture is intentional. It says he had to go through Samaria. Now, it gives us a couple of options. Option number one, Jesus potentially had a date on his calendar in which he had to be back in the northern half of Israel, back in his home base of Capernaum. And so he didn't have an extra day or so to make the long commute around an entire region of that country. So he had to get through there. Or option number two is the mission that God had sent him to earth to do required that he go to Samaria. Uh, Either way, we win because there's an application for all of us. I mean, all of us have things on our calendars, don't we? Uh, You may have something to do later tonight. You you definitely have somewhere to be tomorrow. And it says that Jesus was tired, which I think that we can all relate to. I mean, when was the last time that you just got in your car and just started driving? Uh, You didn't have anywhere to be. You just were driving around and you drove as far as you wanted until you got bored and then you turned around and came home. I would guess that all of us have either never done that or we haven't done that since we became adults. Because we always have somewhere to be. And we use that somewhere to be, that circle on our calendar to say, well, I can't do any ministry because I got, I got somewhere to be. I got a full calendar and that full calendar has made me really tired. And yet those two excuses did not prevent Jesus from having this divine appointment in which his father had arranged for him. So it's a good, a good gut check for me. Am I opting out of ministry that God has arranged for me? Because I got somewhere to be. And I'm tired on the way to where I have to be. You know, I always think about the excuses that I make for myself. Will, will, will this excuse work when I stand before the Lord and give an account for my life? 
which the scripture says we're all going to have to do. Now, thank God that he is a God of grace and we're going to be welcomed in. And yet you can be welcomed in and, and still have to give an account. Those two things are not mutually excuse, exclusive. And so I'm going to have to stand before our Lord and I'm going to have to give an account for my life. And I want to know, are the excuses that I use today going to work then? Am I going to get before the Lord uh, in kingdom come and, and say, uh, you know, hey, I missed that appointment that you had arranged between me and that stranger because I never showed up at the place because I was super busy at work. I mean, my kids, geez, I mean, my kids are the overlords of my life and they got things going on. Therefore, I have to drive them to the things that they're going on. I would have done a ton of ministry if you had not blessed me with all these kids. I mean, is he going to pull up my Google calendar and be like, dude, you were not kidding. <laughs> you had a lot going on. For, I don't, forget all the things that I was getting ready to hold you accountable for. You are off the hook. <laughs> I can't imagine that that's how that conversation is going to go. And so if my excuse won't work then, then I can't let it work now. Right? And Jesus proves even if we're busy and we're tired from being busy, um, we still have time to do ministry along a busy road. Right? Or if Jesus just had to go through Samaria because it was the mission that God had sent him to earth to do, then it reminds us today that God may ask you to go the harder way because there's somebody waiting at a well for you. Right? Going through Samaria was the riskier way. It was the scarier way. Most of Jesus' contemporaries would have been content to just walk around, but maybe his mission drove him down the harder way. So he's sitting down at the well, and it's about noon, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So immediately, the way Jesus is responding to her uh, puts her on guard because he is not acting normal. Right? Uh, she says, this is really not what is done. You are a, a, a Jewish man. I am a Samaritan woman. Um, what are you doing? Right? We're not supposed to be associating with one another. And, uh, Jesus ignored um, and, and in fact overcame the divide that they had inherited. Uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman had no beef with one another. They had never met. Right? So the thing that divided them was not really them. They had just received that. But Jesus chose not to participate in that divide. And, and he bridged it. When I was in elementary school, I, I grew up at a country school, especially compared to Houston. And so our bus took uh, us into a lot of different neighborhoods, picking other elementary kids up. And um, from as early as I can remember being on that bus, I knew where each neighborhood ranked. I knew the neighborhoods that were really nice, nicer than mine, uh, better than mine. And I knew the neighborhoods that were not as good as mine. Now, 
Uh, I, I don't remember a time where my parents drove me through those neighborhoods and said, hey, son, we just want you to know how to brush your teeth. You're four years old. And we also want you to know we're better than these people who live in this neighborhood, but we're not as good as these people who live in this neighborhood. And I was too young to calculate square foot, square footage, you know. Uh, but yet somehow, even though I don't think anyone intentionally taught me how to rank people and rank myself compared to those people, I did. Uh, Just like I bet that you can't really point to a person who taught you to be prejudiced, and yet here we are, and we are. Because the question for us today is not, am I prejudiced? The question is, I am prejudiced. Who am I prejudiced against? And am I acting out of that prejudice? Or am I doing what Jesus did, and I'm bridging the gap? I'm reaching across that prejudice. Because what she expected Jesus to do that day was one of two things. Either when she showed up at the well, that he would get up and leave. Or he would just ignore her and pretend that he wasn't, she wasn't there. But either way would be to perpetuate the divide that they inherited. Just like I, I don't think any of us today, we look like a younger crowd. I don't think any of us today would take responsibility for the divides between the Republicans and the Democrats. I don't know where it came from, but I know it's not my fault. We probably today wouldn't take any ownership over racial divides in America. We wouldn't take any ownership personally of any economic class divides uh, in which we have been uh, put into groups here in America. We inherited all those, and yet we can choose to either bridge across them or to perpetuate them. But those are your only two options. There is no neutral there is no, well, I, I just, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Right? To not say anything is to, for Jesus to just ignore the woman when she comes to the well, which is to perpetuate the divide that they inherited. Right? But he doesn't do that. He, he's proactive. He, he's clearly more friendly than she was expecting him, him to be right? because he knows what God is up to. He knows that God is up to Revelation chapter 7. Same author of this gospel later on in his life is going to get a preview of what's to come in in kingdom come and eternal life. And in Revelation chapter 7 gets a little preview of church. And I'm just going to be honest, church then is going to be a lot better than church now. And one of the ways that it's better then than it is now is it's all kinds of people. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every uh, locale and group around planet earth, we're going to all go to church together. Thank God we will have a better pastor then uh, than we have now. Right? Jesus knows this is where God is bringing all of us. He's bringing all of us together. There, there are going to be no divides. Jesus also know what, knows what he's going to say later on in John chapter 17. Uh, in his prayer to God, he's going to, he, he's going to talk about how we as followers of Christ in this world should all be one. No matter what language we're from, no matter what ethnicity we are, no matter where uh, we came from, how we got here, we're all supposed to be one. And in fact, the world is going to know that we are disciples of Jesus based on our oneness and our love for one another. Jesus knows all of this. So instead of just walking away like his contemporaries would have done or ignoring her when she came, he said, you know what? I'm going to let on earth be done what it is in heaven. And so if God is bringing us all together in heaven, then I'm going to be more kind and friendly and um, proactive um, than maybe anybody else would be because I know what God is up to. 
And then there's such a good news. I mean, we just look at our world right now, and it's just, it's just chaos, and it's just the worst. People are the worst. That's the lesson today. People are the worst. And I mean, honestly, I mean, do you feel like you have any influence in this world? I mean, I call my congressman all the time. Uh, Amanda and I, anytime something happens in this world, I'm on the phone uh, with uh, them. And, uh, you know, your senators won't answer your phone call, by the way. They just leave it to a message. But your representative, somebody will answer. They probably don't write it down. But at least it's a human being on the end of the phone, right? I mean, and that's all. That's all we can really do, right? I mean, you can put some stuff on the Internet. But I don't feel like I have a tremendous amount of influence in this world. So we get to issues like this, issues that are dividing us, and we're just like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. But Jesus could have done this. He's like, well, I'm just one person. Now, I mean, he's the son of God, but go with me. <laughs> but, but he was able to, to bridge the gap between him and one person. Is anything that you do this week going to shape America? Probably not. But you can bridge the gap with one person. And, and we should just do what Jesus did, which is just, why don't you just start by being nicer than you need to be? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, God gives us the gift of the Spirit of God, comes and lives right inside of us. And then once he's living right inside of us, we bear all kinds of fruit. That's a sign that you are a follower of Jesus, not just that you come to church, but the Spirit of God is bearing fruit. And, and Paul gives a list of some of that fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, those things. One thing that we can hold ourselves accountable for between this Sunday and next Sunday is that I bear all the fruits of the Spirit to every type of person that I interacted with. Or are there fruits of the Spirit in which I am withholding from someone? For whatever reason. Will it fix everything? No. Is it a good start? Yes. Are you and I responsible for doing it? Yes, because we claim to be followers of Jesus. Therefore, we need to follow Jesus across the divide. Second thing that I want you to write down. Christ Jesus offers living water. Christ Jesus offers living water. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I think that's something that the Spirit of God, also known as the Spirit of Christ, is consistently saying to me, Curtis, if you only knew who you were connected to here, if you only knew who it was that you were praying to, You wouldn't waste your time asking for uh, blessing missiles. I mean, that's what a lot of my prayers feel like. God over there, that person I love, zoom them. (laughs) With some blessing confetti. (laughs) This situation that's uh, real difficult and super annoying for me. (laughs) Blessed. I think he would say to me, man, if you knew, if, if you knew that the, the power of the living God that raised Jesus from the dead is just, is just right there when you say, Father, boom. The, the, the presence of Christ is, is right there available at any coffee shop, in any corner couch, in any quiet space, when I open up the word. 
Curtis, if you only knew who it was that was sitting here with you. And that's what he says to this woman. If if you knew who was sitting here, um, we wouldn't be jockeying about, is it appropriate for me to be here in this well and that well? You would ask me for living water. Now, living water was not a foreign term to her. She had heard that before because any moving water, they considered living water, uh, right? So they um, would not have qualified our bayous. Uh, Slow-moving scum, not living water, right? Uh, Ponds, not living water. Puddles, not living water. Streams, uh, living water. And and so she thinks that's what Jesus is talking about, something real earth science-y. So she says in verse 11, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Again, she thinks that he's talking about something real practical. And in his uh, mind, he's ranking wells and water. And so she kind of takes offense as a Samaritan because it seems like Jesus is um, disregarding and downgrading the status of this well. And so she says, no, 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 no. This well, we can trace uh, it all the way back to Jacob, the great patriarch of uh, my people, the Samaritans and your people, the Israelites, uh, that Jacob, he sat right here. And not only does he sit right here and drink from this well, his sons did and his cows did, his livestock. I mean, this is a good well. About a month ago, I was in Washington, D.C. and was getting a tour of the White House. And we walked by and our tour guide said, this staircase right here, every president since such and such has stood there. And, uh, and so I just bebopped on and walked down there myself. So we're going to see how that works out. I don't know what it meant. But, uh, you know, what she was saying is right here where we're standing, like every president has stood right here. And this is what she's saying at, at the well. We can trace this back. You know who stood right here? You know who drank from this water? Jacob, our great forefather of the faith. He, he drank from this well. So how are, how are you saying that this well is not living water This is not good. He goes on to explain in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, again, I'm not talking about uh, earth science here. I'm not ranking wells. I'm saying that I can give you eternal life. And so I think all of us should just ask ourselves right now, can you say with confidence that you have eternal life? Let me tell you, the church well is a broken well. That that water is, well, a lot of times that water is not good. I'm going to try my best to be the best person I can be. It's not a good well. Can you say with confidence that you have eternal life tonight? And if you're, you're honest and you're like, I don't, I don't think that I can. Jesus is here to offer it to you. A, a, a well of water that results in eternal life. Third thing that I want you to write down. Christ Jesus searches and knows us. We're getting to know the Messiah, the Christ. Christ Jesus searches and knows us. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Again, she's just thinking uh, very earthy. Uh, This would be great if you had some miraculous water in which I could drink it and I'd never be thirsty again because I'm getting annoyed coming out to this well in the middle of the day over and over again. 
Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now Jesus takes a hard left turn here, doesn't he? I mean, she's just like not getting it, which I don't falter for. I don't get it a lot either. And he's like, hey, let's talk about your deepest shame. (laughs) So he's got to have a real good reason for her good in bringing it out into the light to rip off that bandage. And we don't know her story. You know. I think maybe we just kind of maybe assume that she's just not good at being married. And so she just keeps trying it over and over again. But, I mean, this was a culture. Um, I mean, if we're raging against the patriarchy today, I mean, they really needed to rage against it. Back in the first century, uh, it more likely, she may not have been good at marriage, but to be divorced that many times, probably there were a lot of men who had done her wrong. In fact, maybe done her wrong so many times that she thought, I I want companionship, but I do not want to do the marriage thing again. And that's why she's with somebody that she's not married to. Regardless, whether it's her fault or not her fault, or like most of us, some mix of the two, Jesus touches something that was very sore in her. And, And he says, this wound in you, it needs to see the light of day. See, that's the thing about our wounds, wounds that we did to ourselves, wounds that other did to us is that we want to keep them in the dark uh, but they need the light in order to be healed but everything in us says I I would rather keep this private but it's impossible to keep things private with the Lord Psalm 139 beautiful psalm you can turn there if you want to you have searched me Lord and you know me You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. And you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So he starts this song by saying, God, you know everything. You know everything about me. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. You know what I'm thinking when nobody else knows what I'm thinking. Uh, You know me completely and you have me surrounded. You hit me in from the front and from the back and then you cup your other hand on top of me. I'm totally surrounded. Later on in the psalm, the psalmist is actually going to appear kind of frustrated by it. Here he's in the first few verses, he's he's excited about it. This is just such good information. It's too lofty for me. But later on, he's going to go, well, you know what? I kind of want to flee from your presence sometimes, but I go over here and there you are. And then I go to the edge of the sea. There you are too. I can't get away from you. It's a both and I relate with that. There are some times when I'm so glad that God is so close and so well acquainted with me and there are other times where like I could use my space right now but look how he finishes the psalm search me God verse 23 and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting so he starts his psalm by saying God you totally know me 
And then he ends it by giving God permission to totally know him. As if, if he had said at the end, uh, polite pass, don't search me, don't know me, I'm keeping secrets from you. He's already established that that is impossible. So, so why both? The, the first part is the truth. Uh, the last part is his acceptance of it. And this is what the woman at the well is learning. Jesus holds a mirror up to her because he already knows the truth about her brokenness. And now it's time for her to accept it. It's time for her to get it out in the light so it can be dealt with. Because everything in us believes that if we said out loud our, our shame, God would say, get that as far away from me as possible. So I wrote down some of my shame while we were worshiping. Now I'm going to make sure I destroy this before this message is over. <laughs> so you don't know it. All right, and you got things that you quit trying to read it. <laughs> she wasn't. Right, you got your own list. And, and everything in us feels like I got to get this list as far away from the light as possible. I got to get this list as far away from God as possible. But look what Jesus does to her. He says, go and bring your husband to me. He doesn't just say, hey, let's talk about your marital status. He says, bring this truth to me. David, who wrote many of the Psalms, in fact, Psalm 139, also wrote Psalm 51 after his brokenness hit the light. Uh, thank God um, no prophet came to me tonight and, and, and said, hey, let's, uh, let's have a conversation. But that's exactly what happened to David. And he repents and he's broken. Uh, which, by the way, brokenness about our sin, uh, underrated spiritual discipline. There are two things that I think propel us to spiritual growth and maturity. One is to know Christ the way that the Apostle Paul talks about knowing Christ in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know him so desperately, even if it means I got to suffer with him because I can know him a little bit more in the suffering. I'll accept that. That will drive us to spiritual maturity. The other thing is the awareness and the devastation of my life does not align with the life of my Lord. God, will you help me? But we skip over that brokenness. We skip over that repentance. That's why some of us are not growing in our faith. Because we don't have anything driving us to align our lives with the life of Christ, except for I ought to do that. I don't know when the last time ought worked for you long term. It does not work that good for me. But David is broken. He's repentant. And he says at the end of this psalm in verse 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. See, that's the good news about your list tonight. God doesn't despise it. If you're willing to be broken about it, if you're willing to say, you know what, honestly, this is not aligned with the life of Christ. Now, if you have your list and you're like, I like my list, actually, and I don't, uh, I don't plan on changing. The scripture says that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to people who are willing to own their list. He doesn't despise it. Jesus said, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And so I just want to encourage you, if, if you've been trying to get off of the treadmill of that one particular 
kind of brokenness and it just feels like you can't get off, maybe you try this. Uh, just looking in the mirror. God, I admit that what you already know about me, I know about me too. And I'm bringing this to you. Christ searches and knows us and he does that for our own good. And then the last thing that I want you to write down, Christ Jesus teaches us the worship God desires. Christ Jesus teaches us the worship that God desires. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. No, duh. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she does uh, what I do anytime the conversation starts hovering around things that I would rather not talk about in public, change the subject. Right. Hey, let's talk about this. In her case, let's talk about religion. Let's distract ourselves with that. You know, there's a big debate between our people and your people. We say that we should worship God on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. You guys say that God should be worshipped in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. What do you think, huh? Let's debate it. Woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I find this real interesting. This is kind of tangential to uh, what we're talking about tonight. But she says, hey, shrug of shoulders. Where should God be worshipped? Who can know? We should worship God on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We should worship God at the temple in Mount Gerizim here in Samaria. And Jesus says, actually, I do know. It's Mount Zion. Salvation is from the, the Jews. That's a really good, important reminder for, for us, those of us who have been born and raised in America, um, uh, to remember that the road to salvation was paved through Palestine. It's a long way from here. And it's, it's important to know that because it helps us remind one another that Jesus did not crash land in Kansas. Right? He does not trace his lineage back to George Washington. Knowing that will help us understand why the Old Testament is important. Most of us look at it like a movie where I've already watched part two. Part two was great. I don't really need to watch part one. Right? Kind of get the gist. But part one, the Old Testament, is the story of salvation. It just starts in Genesis and God took a real long time to get to Bethlehem. And if he took a real long time to get to Bethlehem and he recorded all of it for us to know, he must have a very important purpose. I'm guessing most of us are Gentiles, meaning John Jewish people. When Jesus says salvation is from the Jews, again, it reminds us that we are invited guests to this party. Americans show up and we're like, no, now I'm here. This party's about me. It's about my American Christianity now, which, to go back to the first point, I think undercuts our excitement about being in a church with every tribe and tongue and nation and people. If we believe Jesus and America are the same thing, then, well, I lose some of the joy in remembering I'm an invited guest. Isn't it so great that the salvation of God's historic people has overflowed? into my life. There's a certain humility, I think, that comes from that knowledge. And I think that's why Jesus pointed it out, even though it's not exactly what he's 
talking about. He says in verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says there's a day coming when that mountain ain't going to matter and this mountain ain't going to matter because God is spirit and there is no building on any mountain anywhere that can contain the presence of God. He is everywhere. And so to worship God is not to go to an address and do a bunch of rituals and traditions. To worship God who is spirit can happen anywhere and everywhere. On any mountain, in any valley, on any road, in any alley. That's why the Apostle Paul, years later, would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether we eat or whether we drink, we do everything to the glory of God. So in just a second, we're about done. We're not going to leave worship. We are just changing the address of our worship. And wherever you go to eat tonight, you go as a worshiper. And when you go home, you go as a worshiper. When you wake up in the morning, you are a worshiper. It's whole life worship Jesus is teaching her here. It's not about this mountain or that mountain, which is important because of what he's just said. Because she wants to redirect the conversation about her shame and her woundedness to what can happen in a church building, essentially. And I wonder how many times we have used our church traditions and rituals to hide our shame and brokenness. Well, if I just come to church then all this that I have in my closet, is, it's, it's, it's less. It's less important. It's not as real. I, I don't have to deal with it because I've gone to church four Sunday nights in a row. And he says, no, to worship God is whole life worship. God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and we worship him in truth, being true about who we are. God doesn't despise worship that has a list of brokenness. This is how John helps us to get to know the Messiah by being able to peer over this woman's shoulder. Christ Jesus reaches across divides. He offers living water. He searches and knows us. And he teaches us the worship that God desires. Uh, Next Sunday night, we're going to find out what she does with this information. Let's pray.